Today, many people who have not looked at this industry, who have ignored it, were reaching out to saying, hey, this Coinbase thing, should I buy it? And that's the big headline today. Mainstream awareness that cryptocurrency is a very big business and it is now trading on the big boards along with the other types of financial companies that we've known for so long. It's interesting in that Brian Armstrong himself made a decision early on about what Coinbase was going to be. His decision was, I want to reach the mainstream. I want to make Coinbase easy for average people to use Bitcoin. And I'm going to do that by not going around the system. I'm going to work with the system. And they have built the company into what it is today by holding to that idea. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, Join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. As always, you're listening to this episode a few days after its recording. It's currently just after 4 p.m. on Wednesday, and U.S. stock markets have closed on the first day of trading for Coinbase's historic public listing. The price, $328.28, up 31% from the reference price that was set on Tuesday night, but down 14% from its opening. And that puts the company's valuation at around $65 billion. This rather impressive result matters for many reasons. But let's start by thinking about what it means for the outside world's attention on the crypto, blockchain, and digital asset industry. Now that a public company whose fortunes are intrinsically tied to that industry is front and center in institutional investors' minds, people will be forced to come to terms with what this radical new approach to money and finance represents. How else are they going to consider whether Coinbase's valuation is reasonable or not? Already, we're seeing a huge spillover effect in the rest of the crypto universe as the prices of Bitcoin, Ether, and a host of altcoins hit new all-time highs. Also, other crypto companies are raising venture capital at significantly higher multiples, exploiting the early investor hunt for the next Coinbase that's now underway. But is this a good thing? And I suppose I mean in the moral sense. This sector is supposed to be about cutting out the middleman empowering the little guy about open, permissionless opportunities for new ideas from fringe-dwelling entrepreneurs. The weirdos, as Coindesk's Brady Dale affectionately called the crypto innovators last week. A public listing by a heavily regulated centralized custodian and the arrival of Wall Street's suits hardly fits that ethos. On past Money Reimagined episodes, we've worried about whether the rush to conform to the interest of the financial establishment could kill this technology's potential to solve problems such as financial inclusion. These are difficult questions. We'll dive into them and many more with two people who can provide not only a deeply informed, but also fundamentally independent view on what Coinbase's listing means for the world. We're joined by Paul Vigna, a reporter from the Wall Street Journal. Regular listeners will know that my ties to Paul are a bit stronger than with other journalists outside of Coindesk. Since on two separate occasions, we entered into what some might describe as a short-lived marriage when we co-authored first The Age of Cryptocurrency and then The Truth Machine. And along with Paul, we'll talk to Noel Atchison, Coindesk's Director of Research. 
I like to think of Noel as the best translator of the language of crypto into stuff that the traditional institutional investors can understand, and vice versa for crypto people who need to understand how Wall Street thinks. Before we meet them, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. Look, this thing that keeps coming up, right? This is uh, Coinbase is now meeting Wall Street. You know, crypto is meeting Wall Street. And we've talked about this in some past episodes. And I think it's just worth reflecting a little bit on this, right? So we, uh, one in particular that I, I think stood out was Raul Powell and Jill Carlson. And I'll be honest, I think, you know, I'm on the fence as to who of these two was right. Raul's view is that institutions coming in is a good thing because it raises the price, which drives adoption, which means crypto gets this network effect. And then when it eventually reaches that, it can start to do meaningful things because people can build on it. Jill's was that institutionalization of crypto brings regulatory constraints and access controls, and that makes it harder for the poor and other marginalized people to participate, and it limits the capacity for permissionless innovation. What do you think? Oh, man. So you want to take a position, but you're wanting me to. Well, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, I think if you were going to kind of position the, the, um, the opposing points of view on the battle for Bitcoin soul, if you want to call it that, which I think was actually what we titled that episode, as I recall. That's pretty much how I describe it and how I'd lay it out. You know, I think that it's all about where we think we are on the evolution path. The more that you have established figures who are giving credibility to something that is as radical in its inception as cryptocurrency, I think you're going to be able to leap some hurdles that might otherwise be placed in your, in your path because you are getting the halo effect or the proxy effect of some of that. Now, at some point, it's a matter of how much are those players uh, really messing with, you know, tinkering with the tool itself. You know what I'm saying? To use kind of a perhaps flawed metaphor. But, you know, I think there's this question, like, to what extent are people coming in, pouring in credibility and cash and walking away? Or to what extent are they trying to mess with the mechanism? And so that's where I think it gets complicated. But as a general matter, you know, I tend to feel like the elevation of the profile has not been a bad thing. I think there are a lot of us, you and I included, who are regularly calling out some of the traps for the unwary around the potential of this particular innovation that might get lost if the build goes a certain direction or priorities shift. But I do think there's a point at which you really have to get back to the fundamentals and say, you know, what is the point of all of this? Who are we doing this for? What is the purpose? My view on this is that we ought to be addressing and redressing inequities in the existing system. And if we're not doing that, if we're simply digitizing, you know, at the most crass level, digitizing the existing system, then is that really worth all of the drama, I suppose, is the way I'd put it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. What are we actually changing? I think that fundamental question is really important. So, so why don't we bring you in, Paul? Because that was actually you know, a key question I think you and I were looking at while we both got interested more or less at the same time in Bitcoin, which was the only thing we were talking about back then in 2013. What are you making of all that, right? I mean, and, and I suppose just more importantly, like a trip down that memory lane, did you ever imagine? I suppose I should say, did we ever imagine? Because we were both thinking about the same <laughs> stuff. Did we ever imagine right. that uh, this would get to this point? I was thinking about that today, throughout the day as I was doing this. It's funny, I did a, a profile on Brian. Saw that. And to do it, I, had, I interviewed you know, a, a lot of people. A lot of people that I had met back in 2014 and 2013 for the first time. It was like a homecoming party. It was you know, a lot of reminiscing. And God, can you imagine when? And you know, I was talking to Fred Ersham and, and he said, Yeah, do you remember when me and Brian we we came to New York and met you and Mike at this, you know, sushi place for lunch? And that was the first time we had met. Mm-hmm. And he said it felt like it was almost like a clandestine meeting, you know. <laughs> it was a 
weird thing that we were writing about, right? I mean, we were both very entranced with the idea that this could be something big. And I give us a lot of credit, frankly, for grasping that early on. That, you know, we realized this could be something big. We didn't know what it would be. We didn't know where it would go, but this had potential. So now you fast forward and Coinbase goes public. It's a big hype event. It's a big moment. Bitcoin hits a new record. Everyone's excited. It's fun. I got to admit, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun covering this as a journalist, telling a story, being at the middle of it. It was interesting. But take a step back and you talk about those fundamental questions. And you guys raised a couple of huge ones. I'll try to briefly answer them. I mean, first off, look, it's interesting in that Brian Armstrong himself made a decision early on about what Coinbase was going to be, right? His decision was, I want to reach the mainstream. I want to make Coinbase easy for average people to use Bitcoin. And I'm going to do that by not going around the system. I'm going to work with the system. You can argue whether or not that was the right thing. Is that pure to Bitcoin? Is that a sellout? But that was his choice. That was his decision, him and Fred. And they have built the company into what it is today by holding to that idea. Does Bitcoin, do cryptocurrencies do enough to sort of you know, solve those problems that you and I were talking about back then, like you said, Sheila, to make it worth all the drama. Frankly, I don't know. Bitcoin has become a tremendous tool for speculators. I can say that without a doubt. It has made a lot of people a lot of money. It's been a great tool in a time of cheap, easy central bank largesse for people to take what is essentially free credit and go out there and speculate on it. No doubt that that has happened. A lot of times I use Bitcoin, I'm, I'm kind of talking about it in the metonym sense. Like I'm using Bitcoin to talk about the entire sector. But I, I do mean Ethereum and all the others. And Ethereum's an interesting case too. Are they doing enough to sort of get at those really big issues that excited us so much back in those early days? Are they really solving the problems of the unbanked? Are they really giving people financial freedom and economic freedom? Uh, that's a really open question in my mind. I, I don't know that you can say they definitively have. Noel, you know, I, I want to turn to you. I mean, first of all, feel free to respond to that philosophical question, because I think it really is at the heart of what we ought to be talking about today. I've also read a lot of your, your writing and, and speaking about the really the big learning curve that this is a forcing function this moment. So anybody in kind of traditional finance who has maybe been resistant or has been inclined to dismiss crypto as a movement, if you want to call it that, or as having a lot of weight behind it. You can't really do that after today, I think. And so what do you think is happening inside some of those places? I mean, surely this has been something we've known about for a while. It's not as if it was a surprise announcement just today. You know, there's obviously been information floating and leaking and deliberately and otherwise for some time. But what do you think is going on now in terms of maybe those who've been resistant, wondering if they should be buying into this new class? Tons to say on that and the conversations that I've been hearing over the past couple of days, especially this morning from traditional investors who've been ignoring the sector so far have been absolutely fascinating. But to rewind a bit, I'll confess something that not a lot of people know. I started looking into Bitcoin. I fell in love with the idea in 2014. I grew up in Zambia. And when I realized that Bitcoin represented permissionless payments, I got goosebumps and haven't looked back since I fell in love with the remittance use case. And as Paul was saying, that definitely was one of its main hopes back in the early days. I know that Paul, you and Michael wrote about this in your book. We all know that it hasn't actually worked out that way, but we are also looking at the shiny stuff rather than at the work that is going on. We know that Bitcoin is used 
for remittances in parts of the world. We know it is used for payments in areas that don't have access to the kind of easy payment rails that we have. So that is going on. It's not quite the revolution that we hoped for. The revolution did happen in the shiny areas that we're talking about here and that we certainly saw today. Lots of lights, lots of confetti, lots of champagne, I'm sure, in many areas. And I used to think that might be a pity. That's not what Bitcoin is here for. But Sheila, you mentioned it earlier in that who is Bitcoin for? Who is cryptocurrency for? And it's for everyone. I mean, it always has been for everyone who is interested. And I think it's a pity if those of us that believed in the more, I guess, freedom uh, supportive use cases back in the early days should dismiss the fact that the institutions are coming in big time. The institutions coming in big time, as you also said earlier, is bringing a lot of funding into the sector, but not just that. It is bringing intelligent innovation. Yes, it's bringing regulation, but I think we can agree that that's actually a supportive tool rather than a suppressive tool. It is bringing well-funded innovation. It is bringing the regulator's attention, hopefully in a supportive way, and it is bringing the traditional investor's attention to what is wrong with the traditional markets. And that is one thing I think most of us can agree does need some reform. Today, many people who have not looked at this industry, who have ignored it, were reaching out to saying, hey, this Coinbase thing, should I buy it? And that's the big headline today. Mainstream awareness that cryptocurrency is a very big business and it is now trading on the big boards along with the other types of financial companies that we've known for so long. Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. You know, it's it's so interesting. One of the things we talked about in our episode on Davos, the Wodegama Forum, was this idea that there's a culture around. We all know that. And that culture is evolving. You can see this viscerally on the promenade in Davos, the Congress Center, who was kind of inside the halls of the Economic Forum's uh, annual meeting, and who was kind of outside of the promenade and sort of the way they dressed, the way they spoke. I joked in the early years of my time here at the forum that I had like the different wardrobes, right? For the people, I had the central bankers, the Swiss bankers, and I had like the, you know, the Allbirds or whatever the shoe at the time was uh, with my hacker community and all of that. But you are starting to see that we are under one big tent, whether we like it or not. You know, there is a lot of movement and energy from many different parts of the culture. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, what either of you, do you think that this listing is a movement kind of away from some of that rebellious cypherpunk, you know, crypto early kind of rebellion, libertarian sort of, you know, wackadoo, you know, uh, wildness. And do you think that we're going to see almost like a tipping, you know, in a way? So I take your points, Noella, but I do think there's a, a 
point in time where you almost crowd out some of that early feel or you create such a bifurcation that there's just more tension than there is understanding and alignment. Where do you both see this going? Look, I don't think you're going to have just one track for cryptocurrencies. You're going to have a company like Coinbase that wants to make it accessible to people. And they're going to come up with a bunch of financial products to help people do different things, whatever they want. You're going to have other companies that come in and offer different kinds of services. You're going to have companies that want to work with the mainstream, that want to work with regulators. You're going to have the part of crypto that wants to remain an anarchist, that wants to remain on the outside. Look, it's all open source, right? So anybody can come in and do whatever they want with it. So I don't think it's going to end up being a universe of just everything in the Bitcoin world now is adhering to regulations and it's all boring in state. And all we did was, you know, we digitized what was already existing and it stinks. You're not going to have that. I think it's going to be interesting that you're going to have this sort of whatever adjectives you want to throw in there, right? The wild west, the anarchists, whatever. This rebellious side of Bitcoin and crypto is always going to be there. And I think that's a good thing because it is going to push the other side of it. Look, nobody wants to support money launderers or drug runners. Except the money launderers and drug runners, they do. Right. (laughs) Um, But it does show what the potential of this technology can be. And I think you can take those sort of rebellious ideas and turn them into something that is more palatable to the masses, but still gives a benefit, gives them something they didn't have before. You can make money cheaper. You can make it easier to send money to do payments. All those things can happen. And I think having a company like Coinbase go public, and like you said, having institutional money come into this space and having all those ideas floating, having that entire mix of ideas and money and energy and having all that stuff floating around, ultimately, I think, will produce a lot of good things. We just don't all know where it's going to go right. I'll add to that. We are seeing the two cultures converge. This has been happening anyway. I mean, we saw someone called Roaring Kitty, another name that I won't say on air, testify in front of Congress because of something that had nothing to do with crypto. So we're seeing this happen anyway. I'll share an anecdote. A few years ago, I think it might have been two or three years ago, it's all blur now, for one of our Coindesk events for Consensus, I was moderating a panel about banks working in crypto. I had a very intelligent person from Citibank who'd been doing some work on crypto on my panel. And in the prep call, he asked me nervously before we signed off, what should I wear? I felt it at me. I thought, do you have a hoodie? And he's the nervous. Well, I can see if my son can lend me one. But that said a lot to me. That said that there is a culture divide. This was a few years ago. But this uh, man who was going to borrow his son's hoodie, he was tickled pink at the idea of being part of this rebel cause, of being at a crypto conference. And, and we've seen this at all of our events. We've seen this at many other events as well. We've seen this at the, in the caliber of the people that are leaving Wall Street to join crypto. The culture's are converging. We're, we're the fun side. Let's, let's face it. We're the side where <laughs> things are happening. Things are being innovated. Things are getting broken. And we're the side that doesn't have to worry quite as much about appearances and bureaucracy as the other side of the desk. But we are getting there. The two cultures converging is a good thing. It is bringing both cultures into the new finance. Yeah, I like to think of it as convergence, but also that the Overton window is just expanding dramatically, right? Like how we talk about crypto, the ways we can relate to it, the kinds of anecdotes we're going to tell. I mean, with any luck, the memes we're going to see, I think are going to get uh, even more uh, hilarious, I hope. 
but more diverse. And I think that that's a really exciting development. And so I think that when we started in a place that was was very rebellious, the place to grow perhaps arguably was towards more traditional kinds of actors, you know, as opposed to the reverse. So my hope is that this will be as powerful of a force in driving forward the entire ecosystem as we all are inclined to think. I mean, I was thinking, Sheila, like in a way I was thinking about how this played out in our conversation with Santi Siri the other day in Argentina, where there's this thing that nobody likes, you know, Argentina's kind of failed financial system, which is in itself a driver of innovation. So there's an enormous amount of innovation happening in Argentina precisely because it is such a failure on the financial front. And some could argue that, yes, if there is people feeling as if crypto is getting too mainstreamy and getting too caught up, then there's this other outlet. Let's go and build the alternative. And we're already seeing it, really. I mean, the innovation in DeFi is just astounding. And that is yet another outlet, another way to create something that is also an alternative to Coinbase, a decentralized approach to, to how we, we enter into exchanges. But I am going to shift from that positive step back, back to a negative one, because I want to just make sure we're t- getting all sides of the story here. Uh, and to you, Noel, because you talked about you know, the fun part, not have to worry about bureaucracy. But Coinbase really does now have to worry about bureaucracy more than it used to. It has quarterly reports it has to make, a whole lot of other new SEC regulations. Not only that, it has to start conforming to the culture of Wall Street because the demands of that quarterly check on their performance and share price are there. How damaging or how positive maybe it could be to you know, the decision-making, the, the management style of a guy like Brian Armstrong and the rest of his team. I was giving this some thought when they initially announced their plan, thinking why would Coinbase want to list? There is so much money sloshing around the private markets. They probably wouldn't have any trouble raising more if they needed it. And as we've seen from their S1, it doesn't really look like they need it. They're doing quite well for cash on the balance sheet anyway. So why? Why are Coinbase listing? And I came up with a few reasons, some of which have to do with the bureaucracy, but some of them have to do with the change in culture, but a lot have to do with their expansion plans. By listing, they do have to conform to those onerous reporting standards, but less so because I think it changed with the listing. They were under a Jobs Act exemption. That it means they didn't have to file quite as much. I think that has now been lifted, so they will. But what do they get in exchange for the onerous requirements? They get easier access to capital. And if they are going to grow fast, which they almost certainly plan to, they will probably need quick access at some stage. Also timing ton of money sloshing around private markets, but who knows how much longer that will go on for. They took advantage of what they saw as an opportunity in the market sentiment today to go public, to enable them to raise more money more easily and cheaper going forward. But I think deep down, knowing the sort of the original ethos of of Brian and, and Fred, as you mentioned earlier, it's about changing the system from within. I don't think they plan to conform to Wall Street culture. I think they plan to start changing it from within, especially in such a, let's say, sclerotic culture. It's probably a bit unfair because Wall Street does change. But in such an established culture as Wall Street, the best way to change it is from within. And we saw in the S1 that they have left the door open to raising further capital via blockchain-based tokens. Wouldn't that be absolutely awesome if a listed top global capitalization company lists a security token? I wouldn't be surprised at all to see that next year or perhaps the year after, be even towards the end of this year, probably a bit precipitate. But I think that's why they did it. They want to change capital markets. They want to bring Wall Street into the next millennium, and they're going to do it by being part of it. 
So, Paul, Coinbase wasn't the only relevant news uh, for the crypto space today. So in addition to the Coinbase listing, we had Gary Gensler, not a big surprise, but it's nonetheless a significant historic moment, confirmed as the new head of the SEC. Now, this stuff matters enormously for the crypto space, A, because Gary Gensler is by far the most best informed person in this space that they've ever had head that institution. I would say any other regulatory institution, he is it. And secondly, the very fact that Coinbase exists in this capacity now is a game changer for the regulatory considerations that the SEC must face. We were talking earlier today, Noel and Cointos, and maybe I'll get you to weigh in after I ask this question to Paul, but about like Binance is running a token against the coin ticker that is, you know, Coinbase's listing. Where does that fit within the regulatory framework, right? So is this just going to make regulators' heads spin? What, where are they going with this, Paul? What, what do you see as the implications here for Gary Gensler and others in, in similar positions like that? I think the head spinning days are probably not over for all regulators, but I think what you will see is a more sort of concerted approach to how to address this stuff. What has really been lacking, I think, in the United States has been a sort of a comprehensive approach to how to deal with this industry. It certainly hasn't come out of Congress. So what you've been left with is every federal agency has kind of had to take their own little piece of the pie and figure it out on their own. And you know, to varying degrees of success, they've done it. Whether or not they've been successful, you can debate. I think getting somebody like Gensler in at SEC is very critical because now, like you said, Mike, you will have somebody who really understands what these things are, what the potential is, what the pitfalls are, how they maybe should be regulated. You know, you'll have somebody who is a really sort of well-respected, well-versed voice on this in Washington talking to lawmakers, talking to regulators, that can only be a good thing. But still, I do think ultimately what we need in the United States is going to have to be some effort out of Congress to sort of codify what these things are and how they should be treated. So similar to what they did in Japan already a a few years ago, you're going to need that to come out of it. I mean, there's a bill in Congress right now. It's a taxonomy bill. They're still trying to just figure out what the terms are and what they need. So We have a long way to go on what comes out of D.C. and how this gets dealt with. But having somebody like Gensler in, I think, is a good thing. Noel, could you just hear your thoughts on it as well? Because you've made the point that, you know, Coinbase isn't actually an exchange. So in that sense, how and who gets to regulate it? And that's a very, very good question. There's lots of head spinning, lots of forehead brows, quite a few raised eyebrows as well uh, going on here. I've heard from traditional finance people, how can they possibly let an exchange trade these things that maybe are securities, not even securities, and how can, they, you know, how can they let this happen? And I've heard people predict that because we now have a listed exchange trading these things, we are going to be getting some clarity from the SEC on what they are. But that overlooks the fact that, as you mentioned, Michael, Coinbase is not an exchange. It has an order book. So we think of it as an exchange, but there the similarities end. It has no other similarities with exchanges. In the traditional world, there is no exchange that will deal directly with retail clients. There is no exchange that will, or there shouldn't be anyway, that will custody the assets. There is no exchange that has its own prime broker affiliated. So it's technically not an exchange by the traditional definitions. And I think that's where we're going to see some interesting progress. What do we mean? By an exchange. The regulation around exchanges could start to change. It'll be slow because we're talking about rules that have been in place for decades, if not longer. And the whole entrance of a new type of model that is a platform, essentially, but it is bringing investors together, 
that is letting them exchange value and potentially lose or gain money, this is going to be extremely relevant. So I think that's where a lot of the head spinning is probably just getting started, actually. What is Coinbase? How do we classify it? Is it more like the CME? Is it more like Nasdaq? Is it more like Robin Hood or is it a totally different tech animal entirely? Noel, I love that you force people to be specific and you do it so patiently. You've also been really patiently reminding people this isn't actually an IPO, it's a direct listing. And I would love for you to talk about why is that important? Because it is, I think, quite important. Maybe kind of for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the difference, maybe do a quick primer on what those two things mean. Absolutely. It is fundamental. And it does also speak to what I mentioned earlier about I think that Coinbase's intention is to change the system from within. The main difference between a direct listing and an IPO is the method in which the shares come to list. In an IPO, you have a capital increase, you have underwriters that will help you with the roadshows, and you have a bunch of investment bankers sitting in a room somewhere figuring out what the starting price will be. And they do this based on the orders, the tentative commitments that they've had from institutions, only institutions. That's how an IPO works. It starts trading on day one and after the races. The direct listing is totally different. There isn't a capital increase. It is a liquidity event. IPO is a capital raising event. A direct listing is a liquidity event. It's enabling existing shareholders to publicly trade their shares, to sell them on an exchange. You don't have an underwriter and you don't have an investment bank deciding the price. And that, I think, is the fascinating difference. The market decides the price. It is crypto appropriate. You don't have uh, an elite group deciding what the market should be paying for this. You have the market submitting their orders, submitting their bids, submitting their offers. The exchange then decides the starting price, but that's based on what the market is telling it. It is more fair. It is certainly more fair to the shareholders as well because it's much, much, much less expensive. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I think that's been really interesting is that a lot of institutional, traditional investors both, I think, categories have been a little hesitant to invest because they don't understand valuation approaches. Like, how do you even figure out, like, what is this worth? What is the price? What is the valuation? So what are your thoughts on that? Well, first, we have to figure out what is it? I mean, I've seen <laughs> and I've done this as well. Okay, let's look at the multiples from currently traded exchanges. What's the CME trading at? Oof, about 35. What's ICE trading at? Oof, maybe 26. So, okay, well, let's take the average of these and apply that to Coinbase's earnings, and that's going to be the valuation, right? But it's not an exchange, as we've talked about before. Is it a tech company? Should we apply a Tesla valuation to it? Or should we perhaps be a bit more conservative and apply an Amazon valuation to it? We don't know what it is, but here's the thing. We don't actually really need to. The market will tell us what it thinks it is. And this is another fascinating development of what Coinbase has done here. It's inviting market consensus on an industry that's based around widespread consensus. This is a fascinating development. And again, another reason why Coinbase joining the Wall Street ranks is a positive sign for both Wall Street and for crypto. Well, I was wondering, you know, when Noah was talking about what it is, one thing that it is, is it, it's a bit of a money machine. I mean, its earnings released last week was spectacular. I think I even saw a tweet from you pointing out that, you know, they'd earned in one quarter what they earned all through last year. Just making money hand over fist. And, you know, in an environment, Amazon took years to go profitable. It's already profitable. So, and yet it's fast growing at the same time. So it's this remarkable, fast growing, you know, emergent technology, but already profitable company with big margins. I mean, what are institutional investors saying when they look at this? What is their, oh my goodness, I, I got to get some. What's the being of the general reaction to the numbers? 
Well, it's, it's funny. And, and when Noel was talking, I was thinking the same thing. You know, the really interesting things, looking at this just as a stock, forget the question of, of what it is. How do you fundamentally value something that is so intimately tied up with the hype cycles of the most speculative asset on the planet? Coinbase looks great right now. They made a ton of money in three months. You're right. In three months, they made more money than they made in all of 2020. And in 2020, they made more money than I think they had made ever before. They look great right now, but they know that there are going to be periods where they lose money. Brian was talking about that. He is prepared to ride that out. That is not how most companies approach anything that they talk to investors about. No CEO ever wants to come out and say to their investors, hey, you know what? We're going to lose money. And it might be for a while, but we're going to ride it out. I don't care if you want to own my stock or not. Most companies don't do that. They just massage the earnings quarter in and quarter out. They come up with a number that's palatable and they say, you know, very sort of, you know, spinny things about when they're not making money. I don't think Coinbase is going to do that. I think it's going to be really hard to have a PE that in some quarters is going to look sky high. In some quarters, you're not going to be able to even calculate it because there's no E, there's no earnings. And in other quarters, it's going to look very low. That's going to confound a lot of investors and a lot of money managers. They're not going to know how to fundamentally value a company that is basically following around a, a, a meme asset class. I don't know how they're going to deal with that. I really don't. But right now, the company is making a ton of money, and that money is going to allow them to, like, that's the thing. Brian doesn't have to worry about it. They have enough money from what they've raised and what they're making. They have enough money to ride all this out. The question is going to be for each individual investor, do I want to ride all this out? Also, with the capital increases that they'll be able to do, they'll be able to raise enough money, even in the bad times, I believe from the institutions who are interested in the idea of crypto, who do believe in its long-term potential, but can't buy crypto assets. They can only hold publicly listed trade uh, shares that are on a major exchange. So that's a, that's a whole different thing. Another thing worth in remembering is that Amazon was compared to retailers when it launched and people were hands up saying, how can it possibly be valued at more than some of these traditional retail you know, legacy companies and look at that today. We're going to see a similar kind of thing with Coinbase. One interesting thing to also think about is how will this change Coinbase's culture? We alluded that to that before. Is it selling out to Wall Street? We, you know, we've discussed that. But what about the politics of Coinbase? We've talked on other occasions that Brian Armstrong has made it quite clear that he does not see Coinbase as a company in which should support political activism in any way, shape or form. It's mission focused. That sounds great. But we also have been all keeping an eye on what's going on in Georgia with companies becoming political activists with Mitch McConnell telling them to stay out of politics, which is bringing more of them in, not the desired effect. And so when Brian Armstrong can ask that of his employees, he has control. He no longer has control. Okay, he has the voting control still of the company, but there are going to be shareholders who would like to take Coinbase's role in the industry, perhaps, or even in the industry more broadly, in capital markets more broadly, in a different direction. How will that change Coinbase's attitude towards getting involved in broader societal issues? Yeah, Noelle, I'm so glad you raised that. I mean, it's so interesting to think that some of the most prominent, you know, crypto CEOs are the exact opposite of kind of the activist CEOs of the current, you know, kind of tech the CEOs who are certainly retiring now from their CEO positions, the Mark Benioffs and others of the world who have very much been 
heavily activist in their orientation towards everything from climate to race relations to labors, you know, whatever it might be. And we saw the CCI just launched recently, like a group of companies came together, none of which have been particularly oriented towards societal change or any of that uh, kind of disruption, which is really interesting when you contrast it with crypto culture which has been, as we talked about, this kind of rebellious orientation and this sort of desire to disrupt existing systems, but isn't necessarily with a lens towards redressing wrong or equity or an ESG, let's call it, kind of orientation, which I find really fascinating. You know, I think it's also interesting to think about what that might open up in terms of competition. So now Alicia Haas, the CFO of Coinbase, has said that, you know, one of the biggest risks, of course, is to Paul's point that it is so highly correlated with the underlying asset, which is itself high volatile or speculative, depending on your orientation towards it. But I also think that there are decentralized, whether or not we think Coinbase is an exchange, and I agree that it is not a traditional, certainly exchange, it is a new thing. There is this rise of decentralized finance, centralized exchanges, things that are uh, that are coming up. And so I do think that the more, essentially to think about whether the more Coinbase follows a traditional-ish kind of route, which this certainly re- reflects an orientation towards that and the history of the company and kind of what it was built to do and what it's oriented towards is a little bit more traditional in that sense. How real do we think this threat of decentralized exchanges and DeFi maybe is? That's certainly a very small volume at this point. But there is still a lot uh, of activity in that space. It's something that a lot of people are watching very, very closely, and it's very new. So are we going to see Coinbase need to be more agile and adjust and become more open to that sort of world? Or do you think that staying the course is going to be the path that maybe suits it best? And, And these threats might just kind of die down over time. It already is. I mean, if we look back at some of its recent acquisitions, we can see it is already positioning itself for that. It recently acquired Bison Trails, which is known for its staking. Staking is going to be a part of some of the DeFi functionality going forward. And Brian Armstrong has even said on occasion, you know, DeFi will be part of our business mix going forward. When this is going to happen, I don't know. You're so right, Sheila. It's so small at the moment. And the regulatory aspect is obviously something they're going to be paying lawyers a lot of money to look closely at because they are now a public company and have to respond to a few more stakeholders. But it is going to happen. And that is another thing that I'm personally excited about. That's another example of how I think Coinbase is going to work towards changing Wall Street from within. If Coinbase, not really an exchange, but as if, is starting to adopt some decentralized mechanisms, some decentralized functionalities, then maybe some of the other exchanges will start to look at this also. We have seen some TradFi companies dip their toes into some decentralized applications. Again, maybe it's just R&D, maybe it's just the PR that they're looking for. But once you realize the power, the cost saving, the access to a new market that this can offer you, I do expect to see more traditional finance companies get involved in DeFi, led by companies like Coinbase. Since, since we're sort of sitting here looking at all this sideline innovation that's happening, and you know, we're talking about DeFi and decentralization, you've been covering this space now for as long as I have. What do you see, Paul, as where the next, you know, the new, new thing is in this space? What's, where's the exciting innovation happening? God's sakes, man. If I could answer that question definitively, Mike, I'd be, you know, I'd start a hedge fund. <laughs> Actually, you know, I have to say the thing that I think is really interesting and I think I'm going to try to write about this, actually, is that I think Ethereum is finally starting to pay off. And 
the fact that it is the, the platform underlying the DeFi craze, the fact that it is the platform underlying the NFT craze, you know, uh, I did a story a couple of years ago talking about Ethereum and the whole idea of dApps and that was all great, but there was nothing happening. There were no dApps that anybody was using. It was crypto kitties and that was it. That has changed. I don't think Ethereum's challenges are over. I know they have other challenges, but to me, that actually is the most interesting thing is that this idea that Vitalik Buterin had that was this alternative to Bitcoin, there's this version of Bitcoin that would be more geared towards just being a platform for other services to be built on top of, is finally actually starting to take off. And what more can you build on top of it from that? I, actually, I really think that is the most interesting thing to me. That's more interesting than DeFi on its own and more interesting than NFTs on its own is that this open computer, right? His idea of this global open computer, this decentralized Android operating system is finally starting to take off. I think that's really interesting. Just thinking about this, because you know, I know that, again, reflecting back on those days, 2013, and how much of a struggle it was <laughs> between you and I to get our editors to let us write about what we wanted to write about. I remember like, you know, the, the hunt for Satoshi was the only thing that really people cared about in 2013 and getting dragged into those meetings after that Newsweek front page article. They still care. They still care about that. I, know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's probably what people care about, actually. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> it is, I know. But I'm just wondering, now, now that you know, we do have this high-profile crypto company out there in the public domain, do you see, I mean, it already is, I mean, looking at all the mainstream companies, not just the journal, but everywhere, it's just really exploding. So putting your news, you know, your journalist hat on, looking at your own industry, what does this do for coverage of crypto mainstream generally? It, it does a lot. And I'll tell you, it's interesting. I was, and I'll give you a small insight into some sausage making myself, you know, a story like the one that I did on Brian Armstrong, you, you really have to go back and do a lot of fact checking with the company, right? I was doing fact checking with the company. And I was explaining some things. And in this story, the, the comms guy realized that I had a graph in there kind of just basically explaining what Bitcoin was. And he said to me, he said, do you still have to do that? And mm. I said, yeah, we are still, I, as a journalist at a mainstream publication, am still at the point where in all my stories, I at least have to give a glancing reference to what Bitcoin is. And the whole point of the story I did on Brian Armstrong was that a lot of people outside of, of crypto circles have no idea who this guy is, and they have no idea what Coinbase is. This is still coming as something new to a lot of people. So... That is going to be the big effect that this is going to have, is that now you have publicly traded company, a large publicly traded company that is going to be getting talked about regularly, that now that they're part of earnings season, now they're part of the stock market commentary. And you're going to have to explain what Coinbase is, what Bitcoin is, what crypto is to a lot of people who still have not heard of it. That's going to be where this is going to have an effect. You know, one of the things that's been really interesting is to watch how the mainstream media and print tackles this, I think, better than the news media. This is in part because it's so nuanced and complicated of a topic. And you're right, you're not starting with sort of a baseline mainstream understanding of what it is. And I suppose the hope is that there'll be more mainstream understanding, which will lead to uh, less fear and more adoption of, of some of these things. And I suppose Coinbase's position, because of the way it thinks about things like user interfaces or the way that it's built to be very familiar uh, to anybody who has an investment, I suppose the goal is to leverage a lot of that mainstream understanding as it becomes more widespread. But Noel, do you think that there is an opportunity now for 
more of the mainstream media, I suppose, to really lean into some of that nuance and really try to play more of a role in not just highlighting some of the drama that we've talked about, which is omnipresent in this space, but really do a little bit more of that fundamental baseline education. Definitely. Less of the FUD, Bitcoin's bad for the environment, Bitcoin with bans and all that. Yes, no, definitely. From the mainstream media, also from mainstream finance, equity research, every single equity analyst now has had to get familiar with what crypto assets are. Many of them were before, but quietly now it's very loud. Now it's obligatory. And that is going to change the mindset of investors. And because media targets these investors, it's going to change the mindset of media as well. It is still necessary, as Paul said, to explain what Bitcoin is. We even still, we do that still in a lot of our research reports, have to have just a little bit of a reminder, assuming that we are bringing in new readers, which is one of our goals. But mainstream media journalists, through everything that we've been doing, through what we've been doing at Coindesk, through what Paul has been doing at the Wall Street Journal, that has been improving the dialogue with other journalists. I've spoken to quite a lot of mainstream journalists over the past couple of weeks, and the questions are getting so much smarter. And that is really, really encouraging. And the fact that they are not embarrassed to ask these questions is also really, really encouraging. The reporting, as we've seen for Coinbase, except for yours, Paul, full of errors, uh, so many, but that's going to get better as well as the market improves, as we hear more about this, as we get more acute quarterly earnings, and as other cryptocurrencies go public, uh, crypto companies, sorry, as other crypto companies go public. I like to think that Money Reimagined has a, a strong role to play there. Perhaps what you're seeing is more and more as our listeners ever grow, we're seeing more and more understanding of the complexity and fascination of the topic. Well, you're certainly seeing that from your audience figures. They're growing by leaps and bounds. <laughs> uh, on that note, like, you know, I think what's interesting about when these big events come up, I'm always struck by the sense on the one hand, you're like, oh, relief, we've got there. There's all the anticipation. But then again, after conversations like this, you realize that, that, that it's just beginning and that the, the work that we have to do is just going to get bigger and more intense. All this does is just breed more, which is fun, which is an exciting part. It's also a little exhausting sometimes. On that note, let's wrap this up and all of us can get back to work. Really appreciate, of course, the two of you, Paul and Noel, for joining us. Didn't surprise me. It was a joy. We will do it again sometime. Sheila, as always, thank you very much for being here again. Thanks to our guests. It's a really fascinating episode. Thank you. This was so much fun. <laughs> we'll and see you all next time. Exactly. So tune in again. This will uh, be back in a week's time for another episode of Money Reimagined. Thanks very much. Bye. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Paul Vigna, and Noel Atchison. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musso, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk. A live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk, and much more. Get an up-close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance, and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. 
Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there. Thank you.